Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Brienne. Today, my guest is Mr. Kevin Vallely. Uh Kevin is the second half of the author duo of Wild Success. Uh, Amy, we spoke with last week. Uh, Kevin juggles his life as a registered architect, leadership mentor, author, keynote speaker, and father, while also becoming an internationally recognized explorer. Kevin, thank you very much for joining us this week. Oh, thanks for having me, Earl. I'm really pleased to be here. Oh, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. You know, after, uh, after speaking with, with Amy last week and hearing, uh, hearing some of the stories she had to share, and uh, you know, I understand that as we work through the book with you, uh, that, that the, the last point, uh, Chapter 7 there, is, is kind of where, uh, uh, where you have a, a lot more to add because it was kind of your expedition the way she made it sound, right? <laughs> That's right. I've done a number of expeditions over the years, and uh, I feel uh, what has got me to where I am is uh, my my deep understanding of, of sustainability, being able to do many different things seemingly and, and juggling it effectively. Outstanding. Well, before we dive into the book, uh, let me start you out where all my guests get started. 
the phrase burden of command. What does that mean to you? Ah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I gave that some thought and uh, it's uh, ultimately as as the, the commander or leader, uh, you're the one that leads. Uh, you're the one that people follow. So it's essential that you um, you have a vision as to why you are doing what you're doing and why people are following you. Uh, and and there has to be a trust. There has to be a trust for uh, for you as well by people that are following you. And this is part of your burden of uh, establishing this trust for your team and and your and 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 people that are following you. And fundamentally, the burden is also responsibility. Uh, as a commander, as a leader, you hold this tremendous level of responsibility for them, for yourself, for your legacy moving forward. Yeah, well, and, and with what you do, I imagine that that responsibility at times is is pretty great. I mean, looking at some of the things that, that uh, you all have done uh, on, on your website, morewildsuccess.com, uh, you know, the, these expeditions, these hikes, these adventures that you go on and, and the, the people will talk about in the book, you know, if you don't take that responsibility serious, uh, it could have dire consequences, right? Yeah, people can die. Uh, that's really what it comes down to fundamentally is that you have people's uh, lives uh, in your hands in many ways. And I did an expedition uh, with my team from uh, uh, the company I work with, the AIP group, and we did a, a traverse across Baffin Island two years ago, which Amy was part of. And I led that expedition. And it was an interesting one because uh, I had done many polar expeditions before. And uh, crossing Baffin Island, fifth largest island in the world, uh, in the Canadian high Arctic, where it's incredibly, incredibly cold, of course. And there's lots of big critters around like polar bears and stuff that wants to eat you. And um, here I was in this environment where I normally would go into these environments with a, with a, a tight, small team of people that knew what they were doing, extremely experienced. And of course, you, you watch each other's back and you, t- you, you take care of each other that way. But you, you, there's implicitly understood that they have tremendous amount of experience as well. Well, on this particular journey, um, the team was uh, incredibly inexperienced. In fact, uh, two members had really never camped before. And one had uh, the coldest she'd ever experienced was minus eight Celsius stepping out of a car once, which is really not very cold right. relatively to minus 35 to minus 40 Celsius or minus 40 Fahrenheit. Same thing at that point every day when we were up there. So here I was, uh, the burden of my command in that environment was to keep people safe and keep people alive and uh, give to them a uh, an experience that they would remember for the rest of their lives. So there was a huge burden in that that turned out incredibly well in the end. But I understand what it means is um, having a team out there that were not experienced and building that sense of trust and having a sense of responsibility as the leader. Yeah, no. And, and you know, I shared with Amy, uh, you know, um, when I got out of the military, uh, and got into my kind of post-military career, my, the first place I was stationed, if you will, uh, was Bethel, Alaska. And, oh, wow. And so I've, I've been in, in 40 below temperatures, yeah. and yes, it, it, it's it's cold. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly kind of how the wind works on, on the island there, but uh, Bethel is, <laughs> okay, so it's fairly similar. Like calm yeah. is like 20 miles an hour. 
Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and so, you know, people, I never appreciated the whole wind chill factor thing until being in that area. Oh, um, I can't imagine. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, well, I mean, I can only imagine, you know, at least I had a house to go into. Y'all are like out in the middle of it. Uh, you know, you either got to move or, or it goes horribly wrong. So you really yeah. don't get a lot of shelter for, for, uh, you're exposed a lot more than I was, is I guess the point I'm getting at there. Yeah. And when you need to get inside, you got to build your tent. It's not like you can just get in, right? So it's yeah. uh, being conscious of this as leader, though, was again, uh, he, having this communication open between you and more inexperienced team members who maybe get themselves into trouble without even articulating it, frostbite and so on. So um, there's, there was a huge amount of responsibility there. But uh, again, uh, you I love it, uh, in fact, because it gives an opportunity then to lead a team to a place they never thought possible and coming away with truly uh, our team was 11 people. And um, I, I can say truthfully that all 11 of us had an experience that we'll, uh, we'll cherish for the rest of our lives. Well, you know, and you just kind of brushed on something there that I didn't think about uh, speaking with Amy, but I, I would imagine that there's a fair bit of and maybe these aren't the right words, but they're the words that are coming to me right now, uh, ego management. Because when you get people out there, they probably don't want to be the one dragging the team down, so they're likely to push forward and, and maybe yep. push those thresholds, right? So how do you how do you get people to be comfortable with, hey, it's okay to, to be vulnerable and say, hey, I need to stop? Well, you know, it's interesting because we did have circumstances out there where uh, people broke a little bit and be through injury or through exhaustion. And we had some very difficult conversations out there uh, and it, it happens. And this happens in leadership as well. There's an expectation, but suddenly realize uh, it all comes crashing down and maybe it's not going as you expect it. And you have to have honest conversations. And uh, in two different cases, I had to uh, take uh, individuals gear on my sled because it, you know, it was, I'm sorry, even though you see yourself as being one of the strongest people here right now, you're not. And I'm going to have to take your gear on my sled. And so you reduces your load so you can actually get through the day. Uh, so people really had to, uh, <laughs> they had to put their ego in their back pocket a little bit on occasion. And that's just the way, but in terms of the productivity of the team and the effectiveness of the team, they had to do that. And in those, in that circumstance, uh, and certainly very much you would understand from a military point of view, this is an environment that you cannot mess around and you're not there to have debates on this in order to effectively move. We got to make these decisions and move forward. It's much too dangerous otherwise. Right. Right. Um, so what got you into this adventurer's mindset, wanting to go into these, these, deadly places and, and take these risks and challenges on that, that most people sit back and they wait for the, the special on the discovery channel to come out. <laughs> well, it's a strange one, Earl. And, and I always say it, it happened when I was a nine year old boy in Montreal. Uh, and I grew up in Montreal, Quebec, Canada and Montreal, a very cold city up North. And my brother and I joined our parents uh, in downtown Montreal. Uh, uh, and it was a Friday night and we got, we got separated from our parents in one of these big department stores in the center of the city. And, you know, for what reason, we were young kids running around, I suppose. It was closing time, nine o'clock. And an overzealous security guard decided to kick us out rather than help us find our parents. 
And it was February and it was actually in a snowstorm when we were kicked out on the street. And we had got into town somehow by bus or by metro, by uh, subway. I, I can't remember, of course, now. But all I knew was that I didn't have money and I wasn't really dressed for where I was. And I was freaking out and I wanted my parents and it was snowing and I didn't even know where home was. It was so far away and I didn't know how to get there. And then my brother started to cry and my brother was, um, he was a toddler, he was six. And, and, and uh, I remember him just saying, I want to get home. I want mom. And I remember trying to be the big boy saying, okay, well, I'll, I'll get us home. And I started to walk and, and uh, first I walked in the wrong direction and, and finally realized I did and then started to walk. I still had no idea where I was going and, and finally saw a street called Sherbrooke Street that I recognized and said, you know, I live close to a Sherbrooke Street. Maybe if I follow that street, I'll, I can get myself home. So with bro- brother in hand for the next <laughs> three plus hours, I walked home and going in and out of apartment buildings to stay warm. And finally, I remember seeing, you know, neighborhood sites. And, and then I, I, I remember seeing, you know, go, go figure the, the, the mind of a young boy, but I remember seeing a police car in front of my house going, I wonder why there's a police car in front of my house. <laughs> and, uh, so ridiculous, but I came to home to very relieved parents, uh, very relieved police officers. And I thought I'd done something wrong, but I realized right then how glad they were to see me and how proud they were of what I had done. It was, it went from being the scariest moment in my life to in many ways being the most empowering one for a young guy. And uh, it sounds crazy, but shortly after that, I had this dream to ski to the South Pole, go figure. So <laughs> that I always attribute that moment as being the beginning of my adventuring career as a young kid, uh, inner city kid living in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. So go figure. Well, yeah, no, I mean, and it, it's, it's interesting how that works out because, you know, I, I would imagine that in some ways that was that night was probably the, the coldest night you have ever had. Right. Cause it was the first exposure and you, you yep. were hooked from there. Yeah. And, but, and it wasn't so much, yeah, though admittedly the cold, it was a huge component of, of course, but it was more this sense of like what I was capable of doing. And at the time I never dreamed I would be capable of such a thing, of course, but I, it was, my hand was forced. I had to, and, and my little brother was depending on me. So in many ways I just, took the burden of command and responsibility and moved forward and did it. And then I, I succeeded at it. And it was this incredible feeling that, wow, you're capable of so much more than you think you are. And I learned that from such a young age. And it was so tactile for me uh, in that adventure, if you want to call it as such, that uh, this adventurous spirit, I think, was there. And there's something magical about being on adventures where everything distills and the important things are very obvious to you. You have to get here. You have to feed yourself. You have to survive. It's very basic. It's not all the other intricacies. All that peels away and you begin to understand things for what they are. And, and you always come back uh, a little bit different after after a big adventure. Well, yeah, you know, and it's it's one of those things where it's it's, uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of the foundation of Marine Corps boot camp, right, is to kind of put you in those similar situations where you're probably never going to be, but there are situations that are going to push you to rely on yourself so you know what you can do if you have to. Yeah. And and, and that you're, you're right. That is empowering. And it's it's sad that a lot of people and, and I'll say a lot of people never get that moment in their life. No, no, they don't. And sometimes when you get sick, you do, I suppose. 
uh, and uh, people are unfortunate enough to get sick but manage to pull through on it. You go there, I suppose. But you're right, most of us don't. At some point, we probably all kind of get there, you know, like, or there's a good chance that we're going to have something will happen like that uh, throughout the course of our lives. But, uh, and certainly with, you know, death of loved ones and everything else where we're being pushed and, and put to places we don't want to go. But it's very important. I, I find there's something uh, so basic and pure about it. And I, I guess that's what always draws me back. And, and really the insights you garner out there. And that's the magic. And that's really what our book is all about is this, you know, the wild wisdom garnered in that adventure world and how you bring that back to your everyday life. It's so poignant. It's so real. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it, there's a direct connection between it all. No, absolutely. And that's a fantastic segue. So, you know, again, the book is, is titled Wild Success. And, uh, you know, your first chapter, uh, you talk about a concept of, of cognitive reappraisal. So mm. go ahead and talk about that a little bit. <laughs> it's a big word or big two words, but it's, uh, it's really reframing. It's reframing. And it's, it sounds so basic. Uh, and it's like, yeah, well, of course. But it's your capacity to do that effectively and quickly. And it, you have to, it has to become a habit to do it. And that's the key to it. It's, and it's basically like seeing a situation, uh, for example, even right now what we're going through with this whole COVID crisis and so forth, is being able to see it for what it is. Either you let yourself spiral into a place where it's all negativity or you, you say, okay, this is an opportunity for us. And what is that opportunity going to be? And be it whatever it is, it's different for all of us now, of course, but it could be an opportunity in terms of the way you work and in, in, the way you interact with others, an opportunity you're coming together as a family, whatever it happens to be, but your capacity to flip it quickly and effectively moving forward, it has huge outcomes in, in terms of the way your positivity is and actually how you perform and excel. So it's something that we always encourage people to do, uh, to make it a habit is to start doing it. You don't ever want to be getting into a situation where you expect you're going to be able to reframe it when you're, you, something really serious is happening. It could be even now, uh, but where something terrible is happening and somehow you're expect on the fly to be able to reframe it. It's not realistic to expect us to be able to do that. So what we always encourage is to just start practicing like little things as it goes. Um, you miss the bus. Oh, okay. Well, it gives me an opportunity to do this. It's just being able to quickly make a habit of flipping and reframing. And by doing so, as simple as it seems, is that when something much more serious happens, when something much more difficult happens, uh, your natural tendency will be to reframe uh, and look at, at the more, look on the bright side of life, really and truly what it ultimately comes down to. Simple as that, and it's very, very powerful. And Mark Matthews, big wave surfer, who we talk about in the book, has an incredible ability. It's one of his superpowers, if you would say. And he is confronted with uh, surfing waves that are 50 feet high, like a five-story building. And his capacity to quickly reframe is really one of his greatest strengths. Yeah. I mean, reading the book and, and reading that, the, those big waves, like, I just, I cannot imagine riding a wall of water that tall. That's, <laughs> that's impressive. That is, the that's thought true. that it'll come down on you too, right? The reality yeah. is that most of the time they, they get pummeled by these things. And suddenly it's like having a five-story building push you down and you go down 30, 40 feet and you're being held down. And then having the wherewithal to stay calm 
and not even knowing where up is. You're just being whirled around like in a washing machine and then being able to hold your breath for 30 seconds for a minute at a time only to come up again to have another one of these monsters thump you down again. So it's an incredible, unique personality to be able to survive and thrive in such an environment. Well, and, but, and, and I like that, that concept of the, 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 uh, you know, we, we use acronyms all in the Marines, but, you know, we, we always talk about PMA, positive mental attitude. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's so powerful of a concept. It's, it's, uh, there's a book, it's kind of a highly, even though it's, it's widely known, I think it's highly underrated because I think a lot of people kind of really miss the meat of the book, but, uh, it's called Question Behind a Question. And, and in the book, um, the author's name always escapes my mind, but he, he uses an example uh, of a phrase. And he said, just, just think about it this way. If you wake up in the morning and you say, man, I've got to go to work today. You know, just saying, I've got to go to work. You start off like it's, it's a burden. It's a pressure. It's something you have to do that you don't really want to do. Hmm. But if you say, man, I get to go to work today. It's got a more positive connotation, gets your day started off a little bit better, and, and you're more likely to have a, a better out view on, uh, outlook view on your job for the day. Totally. And, and it just, you know, a lot of people think it sounds like hokey and, and like, you know, kumbaya and all that kind of good stuff. But there is a lot of value in just the positive mental attitude. Oh, absolutely. And George, uh, I mean, like George Bonanno, he, he, uh, he's a, he's a psychologist. I think it's at uh, Columbia and he's done studies on this and, uh, it's, uh, it's again around this reframing and the power of it. And what we don't understand, but there's, there's so much science to this. And that's the interesting thing is that his thing is always a PTE. He calls it, it's a potentially traumatic event. And like, he's talking more trauma here than just attitude necessarily, but it's the same thing. And is that anything, every event to him is not necessarily traumatic to someone. It's potentially traumatic. It's just how you frame it. So after it happens, something that maybe is incredibly traumatic to one person is not to another. Why? Well, it's how they see it. And it's the construct, the construal of that moment. And um, it's very important. It's how we see it. And again, it's down to just being able to frame it or reframe it accordingly so most likely exactly like you're saying is like how do you see that your day ahead <laughs> is it something you have to do or something you want to do yeah no there's uh so there's a the, another podcast out there the the jocko podcast and uh jocko willink uh he's famous for for just saying the word good right like like people asking these questions it's like you know uh the brakes failed on my car today how am i going to get the money to pay for it it's like your brakes failed Good. Now you get to walk to work and lose a little weight. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's, it's true though, right? Right. It's, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So the, the second chapter, grit, the passion to prevail. Talk about that one a little bit. Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's this, uh, it's passion and, and, and perseverance and sort of the magic of grit. And we talk in this, it's, it's, it's Paul Gleason and Tori Holmes. Uh, and Paul, I know well, I've done a major expedition with Paul, in fact, across the Northwest Passage. And it's this capacity to be resilient, but it's more than that. And it's your capacity uh, to keep going, but have a passion for what you're doing. It's why you want to do it. And um, it's, it's an interesting one because a lot of times, like what we talk about in the book is with with Paul and Tori, they had this crazy idea of 
of rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, if you can believe it. And in doing so, set out about doing it. They had this passion to want to do it, yet they persevered. And they had the grit to do it. And it was interesting because they had no experience. They had never actually rowed before in their lives. They just had this idea, crazy idea that they wanted to do it, but somehow took it more from the idea and built upon it and built a passion uh, around wanting to do it and, and managed to succeed where the vast majority that would ever want to do something like this um, would never. And, 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 and the reality is this, this grit, this ability, you have a certain amount of talent and ability, but your capacity to keep working at it and moving forward will really define the difference between success and failure. That is fundamentally what it comes down to. Yeah. And, and again, when Amy was telling this story that like it, I mean, I'm sure there was more thought that went into it, but it essentially boiled down to like, Hey, you want to sail across the Atlantic? Uh, sure, why not? Yeah. I mean, who, who has that conversation? Who has that thought like flow through their mind, right? Well, uh, sometimes you do though, because I mean, I've had that with adventures before where I just thought for whatever reason, it just struck me like, wow, I would love to do that. And there's no logic to it. It's just, and we all have that. We all have that. And whatever it happens to be is like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if I started a business, my own business. Wow. And, and you just have this idea and this, this, this just spark of, of interest. And then you move forward. But there lies the difference between succeeding is first, you have to have that spark and right. wanting to do it. But then the key is now being gritty enough to be able to carry it through to the end. And, and there's a lot to that. And that's the hard part, frankly. Uh, but the first and foremost is being inspired to do something. And a lot of times it just comes out of left field. You don't know why it's there, but it is. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. All right. So chapter three, growth mindset. Sitting still means going backward. <laughs> Definitely. Well, Matt McFadgen, uh, who is a colleague of mine at the AIP group, uh, Matt is an amazing individual and he's, uh, he's, uh, he comes from a very humble beginnings in Australia where, you know, growing up with a single mom and basically on a crash course to just, you know, working a basic basic job for the rest of his life, uh, wanted more and had managed to make himself over very few short years develop from being a, uh, uh, an internationally recognized open ocean sailor to uh, skiing to the North Pole three separate times. Only one five, five person in history that has done that. And it's his capacity to keep growing and all, always be able to be take on criticism, learn from it, and move forward. And that's ultimately what this growth mindset is. And our instinct so often is to reject things we don't like that are not good. We don't want to hear. We we just assume that um, you know I have a certain amount of talent. This is what I have. And if I'm told that I'm doing something wrong, it's just proving that I don't have enough talent. Someone with a growth mindset is like, no, actually, you tell me what I'm not good at and I'm going to get better at it because there's no limits on what I can do and I can get better and I can challenge myself and I can learn from that. And it's such an incredibly healthy attitude to have. And he's he demonstrates it uh, so am amazingly so in every level of what he does. Yeah, and I can identify with that one so much because that was, you know, everybody always asks, so why did you join the Marines, right? And and you know, I, I give kind of the standard, uh, you know, the dress blues look sexy, the whole nine yards. But if I'm being completely honest with myself, it's exactly what you just said. When and when I was in high school and I started telling people I was thinking about going into the military, I kept hearing, well, whatever you do, don't go in the Marines. That's just crazy. 
that was just like bait for me, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, okay, well, fine. Everybody's everybody says don't go into Marines; it's too tough. Well, that's what I want. I want that challenge, hmm. uh, and and it does. It gets kind of uh, it gets kind of addicting, pushing yourself past those boundaries, uh, and having the confidence to know that you can do that. that like when you get that very neg- negative feedback, which undoubtedly you got in the Marines uh, all the time, is that. Then you take it on board and you make an adjustment and says, nope, next time that's not going to happen. Or now I'm going to learn from that rather than just throwing your hands up and going, well, obviously I, I, I'm not cut out for this. So it's a really, it's a mindset and being able to teach yourself that it's really an opportunity, you know, an opportunity mindset. And we love to call it that as well. It's this, no, like this is an opportunity to grow and, and, and build and learn from something and treat it as a, yeah, it's an opportunity rather than being as a setback. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we've already kind of uh, skirted around chapter four a little bit, but uh, purpose, finding your spark. Yeah. Go ahead and uh, unpack yeah. that. Yeah. Well, Ross Savage, uh, she's an amazing, amazing woman uh, who is the greatest ocean roar in the world by far, has uh, has four world records to her name and uh, the list of her accomplishments go on as, and, and accolades go as long as my arm. It's incredible uh, and just insightful. But she made a decision that what she was doing, she was, uh, she was working middle management. Uh, she was working in England. She had gone to Oxford. She had done everything, like an incredibly bright person. And one day she was just... Um, Taking the uh, the uh, subway to uh, or the tube into into town uh, in in London and was reading um, an obituary section of an, a, a, a a colleague's newspaper just looking over their shoulder and started to read the obituary of all these people whose entire lives were uh, encapsulated in one small paragraph and 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 she realized to herself there was that you know why would my obituary, well, will I even have an obituary? And mm. and that night she went and actually wrote her own obituary. She did an exercise for herself. If she keeps on the track that she's going on, what would her obituary be? And and if she, what would her dream obituary be? And she wrote that. And right there she changed and everything changed for her. And she wanted to find her purpose. And uh, she, um, she sold her home. She left her husband. She quit her job. Like, I mean, it was incredible. Like the extremes that she went and, and then she found ocean rowing and it was the right thing for her for whatever reason. It culminated in everything that she wanted to do. And all these things were to find her purposes, pushing her limits. And uh, she built upon that and now has made it a vehicle to do so much more in terms of environmental movement, in terms of um, being an advocate for, uh, for, for women. She's just this incredible person who has truly found her purpose and uh, made some major changes in, in getting to do that. Yeah. And, and that is outstanding because, you know, I, I think for me, uh, one of the eye opening things about this book, uh, you know, obviously the content is, is fantastic. And, and I'll just go ahead and say again, like I did uh, last week, uh, I, I really strongly encourage every one of my listeners to go grab a copy because the stories that are in here are, are fantastic. But, uh, like I, I, I had no clue that an open ocean rower was a thing, yeah. uh, uh, and and so to to just have that kind of epiphany on 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 your commute and and kind of settle on that, uh, that that 
that's amazing. That is that is super amazing to me. Uh, Intimidating. Can you imagine being out in a twenty-five foot rowboat or less, even right. uh, in the for eighty-five, a hundred days? I think it took her a hundred days across the Atlantic when she first did it, out by yourself, and uh, it just in the biggest seas in the world. Like it's just, it's truly so intimidating. Uh, it, it defies understanding, but a capacity to do that and then go back again and do it over and over again. She's it's just incredible. But but the things I'm certain the things that she's seen that that very few other people have has got to be just astounding. Yeah, and internally, right? It's like right. you see stuff, but then you come back and it's like, wow, I I was able to do that. What allowed me to do that? And you go to very and I and I can speak to it myself on a number of my expeditions. You go to very very scary dark places. I tell you on some of these journeys, it's really intimidating, and you have these really. Uh, you know, important transcendental moments where everything kind of changes for you a little bit and then you come back different. And really, that's what it's all about. I mean, T.S. Eliot's, uh, you know, famous uh, poem about, and I, I, you know, I won't be able to quote it exactly, but at the end of all um, uh, exploration is to return where you started and uh, see the place for the first time. And it, it, it's this beautiful way of saying, really, what exploration does is it simply just changes you <laughs> uh, in the end. Yeah. No, it's um, – yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. And, and it, it that, that, that poem always reminds me of kind of a, in simpler terms. And, and the philosopher just blew out of my mind right now. But it was one of the ancient Greek philosophers. He said, uh, a man can never – uh, a man can never step in a river. Uh, well, think of Seneca. A man can never step in the same river twice, for he's never the same man, and it's never the same river. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, so no, it's 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 just impressive, you know. Uh, I, I and this is you know this book. So you know, I asked you how you kind of got into it, and I'm not gonna lie, this is kind of actually kind of sparked me a little bit because, uh, you know, again, reading some of these things, it's just like I never I never thought that these were things that, that, that sane people did, yeah. uh, but they do. And yeah. and I guess that kind of uh, falls in a little bit with Chapter 5 here, uh, Innovation, Big Dreams, and Big Struggles. So let, let's go ahead and unpack that some. Yeah, well, uh, it's the chapter is about Rex Pemberton, and, and Rex is an incredible individual who uh, – who, as a young guy, decided at 16 that he wanted to climb Mount Everest and managed to pull it together with support of family. And, and I believe at 21, ended up summiting. He was the youngest Australian ever to do that. And then kept going from there and always had these dreams of doing these things that just were so outrageous in so many levels and took up uh, wingsuit flying, which uh, base jumping is jumping off cliffs with parachutes and, and, and then uh, a wingsuit flying where some, you know, some of your listeners may have seen it's, it's like, you know, these people are in squirrel suits for lack of a better word, flying by cliffs and everything else and became one of the best in the world at that. And, and then wanted to build upon it and has this, this dream of innovating flight for human flight. And, now is in the process of creating uh, this jet wing, which is this uh, this uh, this incredible solid fixed wing uh, uh, thing that he straps on, jumps off a, a, a helicopter, and he can fly for <laughs> forever with jet engines on it. Go figure! I mean, this is right out of Toy Story. Like this is actually <laughs> happening, though. And uh, but he he's doing puzzled. it. 
He is really, Buzz Lightyear. He is Buzz Lightyear. He really is. And it's just incredible. But his his way of like how can he be so innovative and and his capacity to dream and 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 push his ideas to do these things is incredible. And that's really why that's what we focus on uh, in in that chapter. And I'm I'm intrigued by innovation as an architect. I as an architect, you're hired to be innovative. And I've always been fascinated by this capacity for us to just how do we be creative? Uh, how do we be innovative? And and uh, it requires some hard work, but it requires also for us to step away from what we're doing to be innovative and creative in those kind of, you know, work on something, step away. And that's usually when you come up with your idea. I, you know, most people listening will probably agree that they come up with their best ideas in the shower or out for a walk or somewhere else. It's rarely sitting at your desk. Right. So understanding the magic of that. And that's what we get into in the chapter. Yeah. Now, uh, because it didn't hit me until after Amy and I had, had finished our conversation. But is he the same gentleman that, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago uh, crossed the English Channel? He's not. No, he is not. No. Okay. But uh, he's definitely a colleague of his. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. And he's even flying further than that fellow did. That was a, he was a French uh, adventurer. Okay. But um, definitely a um, uh, similar thing. A yeah, similar thing. Yeah. Well, it's just, and, and you know, the, because uh, you, I, and I'm going to link uh, the video uh, that you all have on your on your website, the the kind of the, the trailer that you have. Oh, and yeah. and it, it's just amazing. And when you see this, so if, if I'm understanding uh, you correctly, like most of this technology is stuff that, that he either came up with or at least had a heavy hand in streamlining, right? Oh, yeah. He's creating it himself. His first one was he carved it. His sister helped him cut it and carve it out of cardboard, I think, and then made it out of wood. And then they jumped out of a helicopter with it. Like, I mean, go figure. So no, he's, he's doing this himself completely. And you can only imagine uh, as an adventurer, like this is not innovating on the fly around for me as an architect designing a house. This is him jumping out of a helicopter. So if things go wrong, things go really wrong. So it's fascinating uh, his ability to be able to deal with massive risk I mean, life-threatening risk, yet still being innovative and creative in that environment. It's really it, an interesting chapter. And, and I'll guess he he doesn't have an aviation engineering degree or anything no. like that. Nothing. He's, no. Yeah. No. But he sure knows a lot intuitively. And he's right. learning, obviously. And he surrounds himself with people who right. do uh, and understand that. So it's And then again, as a leader, uh, knowing uh, what people to be part of your team moving forward, you have the dream uh, you compile the team then to make that dream a reality. We can't be an expert in every area, right? And 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 again, going back to what we talked about before, that level of trust. I mean, you're jumping out of a helicopter with this thing on your back. I mean, I, I know he's got a parachute for, for fail safe and all that kind of good stuff. But still, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in aviation with a bad wing design that a parachute's not going to be able to save you from. You bet. And, you know, he has jets attached to that wingsuit and uh, to his, his whole apparatus. So jets have fire and fire and parachutes don't mix. <laughs> so it's, you know, there's a lot of things that could go wrong catastrophically very quickly if things don't work out well. So, yeah, he certainly he's a very bold man. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, OK, so chapter six, uh, resilience bouncing forward. Let's talk about that one. Yeah, resilience. We focus on Lisa Blair, and uh, she's a young woman and uh, broke the world record circumnavigating Antarctica around the, the Southern Ocean. And 
incredible story of resilience uh, on her journey across uh, the Southern Ocean. You have to understand it's one of the, it is the most notorious ocean on the planet. It's it's freezing, obviously, but it's a roaring forties, uh, you know, the latitudes, um, and just just storm after storm after storm in huge seas. And she's out there by herself, solo uh, sailing. And one night in the midst of a massive storm, her mast snapped uh, in half. And she was left with this, this, this mast now that was acting like an anchor in the water, seesawing over her boat, trying to sink her. And she was a thousand miles from land. And it's how, her, how she was able to deal with that moment as, as, uh, and not just essentially just give up. Because at this point in the game, it looked like things were not going to go very well. And uh, there was no rescuing her. If she didn't take care of it, she was going to die. And how, how she had to do that and did that. And it all was based around her capacity for resilience. And in that moment of, of just staying strong and moving forward. And we talk about you know her ability. It was really her preparation beforehand. And her attitude went out there. She she did all the preparation and then put it aside and then went out there. So when it actually did happen, she anticipated this was going to happen and was able to deal with it accordingly. Didn't change the anxiety, but it didn't overwhelm her. And she wasn't emotionally hijacked when she was out there. So really fascinating story that uh, certainly readers will get caught up in it and just shake their heads at her capacity to do this. And then even after being able to repair, she had to um, limp into into uh, Cape Town, South Africa, and uh, you know where any normal sane person would have said, "Okay, I just dodged a bullet there. I'm done." Spent two months fixing her boat and headed right back out, even into worse seas again to continue her journey, which now is at winter time, and the seas were huge, even bigger again. So. This capacity to just stay strong, uh, stay focused on your vision, and be incredibly resilient is uh, what we focus on in that chapter. And and what I liked about this, again, going back to the military, and then, uh, you know, I like to talk a lot about NASA, especially the heydays, the early days of the, the space program. But I think this is the thing that a lot of people miss today. Planning isn't about setting out every every single step of what you're going to do planning is being prepared for the things that could come up. Yeah. Uh, like you said, she, she didn't plan, Hey, I'm going to get here and then my mass is going to break. That was never part of her plan, but it happened anyway. And like I said, she was, she was prepared for it. And that that's where I see a lot of people go off the rails more. So is they're like, well, I had this plan and then this happened and I didn't know what to do because my plan fell apart. Right. Yeah. yeah. And adventure is expecting the unexpected. And that's the unique thing with it being an adventurer is that uh, you kind of know it's probably not going to go to plan. You're doing something that often no one has done before or doing it in a way that no one's done before. So you, there's really no precedent. So in many ways you have a plan, but you have to, and I mean, any good adventurer will tell you, you have to know that it's probably going to go wrong and how are you going to deal with it when you do. And that's the critical aspect of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so here we go. This was the the uh, the piece de resistance here because uh, uh, Amy set this one up very solid for you last week. She really didn't want to talk much about it at all. But Chapter 7, Personal Sustainability, Building Balance. Let's talk about that one. Well, balance for me uh, it started, uh, I mean, really what, what the epiphany came to me uh, in university and uh, – I had, 
as I had said, I was a young kid and I had this dream of skiing to the South Pole, but I, you know, being any kid and I was an inner city kid living in Montreal. You have to understand my folks came from Ireland. We didn't even own a car growing up. Uh, we lived downtown and I'd never camped in my life before. So it was kind of a preposterous dream really of have this passion to do this. And I always wanted to be an architect and I got into the McGill University School of Architecture and uh, was just thrilled and started to study to be an architect. And right away, they set a tone as they do in architectural school is that you're going to, if you want to be an architect, you're going to have to work really hard. And our, my second night, uh, our second day at, 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 in university was an all-nighter. We spent the entire night working on a project with our professors knew full well there's just no way we could continue going at that pace because they, it just, they just wanted to give you a taste of what it was going to be the like for the next five years, for the next 45 years as you have your career. And it was just part of what architecture was all about. And I remember through first year, everything fell apart for me. I, I was doing well in school, but everything else, I quit. Like I lost my girlfriend, lost relationships, never saw my friends. I was never home. I was always in studio. I wasn't eating well. I was just, uh, I, I had been a bike racer at that point and I quit. I just had no time for anything except architecture. But I figured that's what I needed if I was going to keep doing it. And um by the end of first year, 15% of the class had quit. And I remember it kept going like that even harder again into second year. And it all kept going exactly right up till Christmas break when it all changed for me. And I remember it so clearly. It was going right into exams. And at the time, I was thinking if I work nonstop, Every hour for the next two weeks, I still won't get everything done that I have to get done. And I was doing a big group project with, uh, with Dave and Julie, my two friends. And, uh, we were working Wednesday and we didn't get, we had our big presentation on Friday. And I remember working all night with them on Wednesday night. And then we, Thursday, we pulled another all night or Thursday night. I remember come Friday, we put our drawings up and people, you know, our colleagues would say how we did and shattered. I, I remember wanting to go home and sleep and, and Dave and Julie, who happened to be sweethearts, uh, said, you know, we're going out dancing tonight. Why don't you join us? And I remember thinking, you guys are crazy. It's like, we've been up for two nights already and you guys want to go dancing. I'll see you in the morning because we had a freehand drawing session every Saturday morning. It was our final class. And I said, I'll see you, see you in the morning. And I remember arriving at McGill and uh, I remember walking up the steps of, um, the McDonald Harrington building, big stone building and going to the big wooden doors. And I opened that big door and right away I knew something was wrong. I just had this sense. It was the weirdest thing. And I remember walking up the stairs, there was three flights of stairs, big stone stairwell um, to where our freehand drawing room was. I remember hearing, I thought I heard someone cry. It was the weirdest thing. And then finally I got up to the upper floor and I saw some of my classmates walking around, but everyone was dazed and some people had been crying and I didn't understand. And I remember looking over and seeing a big group of people around Julie. And then I remember just looking at her and meeting her eyes. And I'd never seen an expression like that before. There's just horror in her face. And I remember thinking to myself, where's Dave? And um, it ends up that he they were out dancing that night and he just dropped dead of a heart attack. He died in her arms that night. And I remember just being like, I was 19, he was 19 years old. And I, I remember stumbling out of that building and it was uh, December in Montreal and snowy. And I walked up onto the mountain for any of your listeners that know where the Mount Royal is. And I was, I remember just walking and finally sitting in the snow and bawling my eyes out and saying to myself, you know, I'm, I, I can't go on like this. I won't go on like this anymore. And I made a commitment to myself from that point forward that I wasn't going to work like that anymore. Uh, I was going to balance my life better. And um, I did. And I stuck to it for the next three and a half years. And 
you know, I started bike racing again, started racing actually on national races in Canada. And, and I was, uh, you know, I've got friends, I was going out, I was taking care of myself, I was eating better because I was racing. And, and, you know, and I said, hell with it, I, I let my uh, marks go where they may, I don't, I'm not going to spend as much time. But something really interesting happened over the course of the next three and a half years, my marks didn't go down, actually, they went up. And when I graduated, uh, even though I wasn't working nearly as hard, I graduated top of my class. And I, won the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada medal. I got a college, uh, a scholarship at Cambridge University in England. And it was an incredible aha to me. It's going, you know, it's, it's a question of balance. You will perform better at everything you do if you balance your life and do it within reason for everything you do. The second you become completely immersed in something, uh, you fall apart. So for me, it was such a critical thing of having this sustainability and balance in my life moving forward. And that's when I, uh, I sort of started rethinking about my, my, my voyage to the South Pole. I said, no, I'm going to get there somehow. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to. And go figure, 35 years later, I did make it to the South Pole. <laughs> Well, and, and, and yeah, it's, I, I like that, that take on it because, you know, I, I think a lot of people really confuse that, that, uh, hard work with sustainability. And, and like you said, it's, yep. you, you can only work full throttle for so long until it all comes unglued. But that sustainability, that, that steady pace, that, that pushing yourself when necessary and taking care of yourself when necessary. That's longevity, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean that's a, it's a tragic story, and and you know I, I, I kind of when I was uh, you know, when you were telling it there, it it, it took me back because uh, when I first when I first got into Marines, so I was in a, a highly technical MOS. I was a uh, a uh, we just call it a, a weather observer back then uh, on route to become a, a uh, forecaster. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of the, wasn't hazing in like the, the traditional sense, but it was kind of like hazing where we were working 24 hour, uh, shifts, 24 on 24 off. Wow. And, and as a new person, uh, you didn't get to sleep on shift. And then every morning, uh, from zero seven to usually about zero nine to, to 10 hundred hours, uh, you had, uh, classes to kind of help get you spun up on localization. So essentially it was, you know, 27 hour shifts and then you had to be back 21 hours later for the next shift. Yeah, brutal. Oh, yeah. And, and I did that for about the first month, month and a half. I was uh, in Okinawa and I just remember one day, obviously not as drastic, but I just remember one day coming back into my barracks and I, I walked through the door and I just hit the floor and all I could do was crawl and, and get in bed and I just I passed out and, and I oh, slept yeah. for like 18 hours straight oh my gosh wow. <laughs> and and it was kind of the same thing it was like man I, I I never want to be this this fatigued again but again what I didn't know at the time with that was that was kind of part of the indoctrination was you know if you if you get this is the tiredest you will probably ever be but now you know you can kind of deal with it uh now from here on out, make sure you're taking care of yourself. You're eating properly. You're doing all yep. these things. Uh, no, it, it, so this was. I mean, again, this was a great book. Uh, I'm glad y'all wrote it. Um, it 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 highlighted a lot of great things about leadership, but uh, I, I like the I like the fact that it highlighted 
some of these aspects of, of the adventuring world as well, and, and hopefully introduced, as it did with me, introduce some folks to uh, some of these, these things that are out there that, that people are doing uh, that are just amazing. I mean, there, yeah. there, there's nothing short about it. It's, it's amazing. Just to, that, that open ocean rowing concept again. That's the one that gets me. Is is that 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 is that is amazing? <laughs> I can't think of another word. That's just yeah. It's, I mean, it's just so unlikely the thought that you could actually do something like that. And we uh, uh, with with Paul Gleason who rode across the Atlantic. Uh, he and I and two other teammates uh, uh, tried to row across the infamous Northwest Passage, which is uh, across the, the connects the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans across the Canadian High Arctic. Um, and uh, again, just putting yourself out there in a small boat in some very, very, very big seas. It's truly amazing what you can do um, these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're willing to go. <laughs> well, Kevin, we're uh, coming up on, well, we're sitting right around 50 minutes here. It's been a fantastic discussion. I really, uh, again, I thank you being being a guest and, and helping unpack the book a little bit more. And and uh, I'll have all the links up so people can go find it and, and watch that trailer. Uh, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover that you would like to like to cover now? Well, I mean, the one small thing would be um, failure. Uh, interestingly, is that uh, as adventurers, uh, we fail a lot. And it's one of the things you do if you're always pushing the boundaries and you're pushing uh, the extremes is that you're always going to come up against failure and how you deal with failure. And it's a very important one, I think, to talk about in that just recognizing what failure means. And it's, uh, again, it's around, it touches on growth mindset, of course, and everything else, but is um, this willingness and, and, and accepting uh, failure and it connects in innovation, of course, uh, as well. But I think that's a very important concept, and it's one that uh, trickles through the book as well. But this, um, the capacity to deal with failure, and how do you do that? And it's very, very important. And certainly with me, as I mentioned, I alluded to that Northwest Passage journey that I uh, attempted. We failed on that journey. Uh, and on, on the surface, it was just a failure. Like, we didn't get to where we wanted to go, but it was out of our control. But interestingly, our purpose of doing it was different. And our purpose was trying to bring awareness to issues. And in the end, our failure uh, really ended up being uh, to our benefit in many ways because it brought awareness to the thing we wanted to bring awareness to more so than had we not failed. So it was an interesting one. Our purpose stayed really strong. Our goal was different. So recognizing the difference between uh, goal and purpose uh, around failure is very, very important. So really, that's one thing, too, that uh, gets touched on in the book and uh, certainly can look at as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I like that. And, and you know, you, you kind of mentioned there you, you failed, but, uh, you know, I, I would imagine uh, that you learned a lot of lessons that the next time you make an attempt, uh, assuming there's a next time, you, you'll be able to apply and, and, yep. and, and, and move further down the line, if not succeed completely. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Uh, you need to if you're not failing. You're not pushing hard enough. I always feel that strongly. Uh, right. You know, you're within your comfort zone. You have to be willing to fail and to learn more to actually uh, excel moving forward. A hundred percent. So, uh, so what is the next big adventure? What What are you planning on doing next? Oh, uh, we have some things. There's something in the Arctic. I have to keep it kind of under wraps at the moment. Okay, <laughs> but uh, uh, it would be a, a a world first actually in the in the high Arctic. So, oh. uh, yeah, that would uh, if it all goes to plan. We'll see how it goes. Uh, these things are always. 
in the works, but um, it would be a real legacy project for me. It would be one of the uh, uh, one of the coldest journeys ever undertaken uh, if we end up doing it, and okay. it would be next winter. So uh, stay tuned, and uh, it would be an amazing project with a really a world class team. So. But I'm going to have to keep it under wraps yet because we're still in the process of <laughs> getting it sponsored. Under, 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 now, if you can, is it is is Amy going with you on this one, or is it just going no, to be no? No, uh, it's a uh, it's uh, it's a team of some really uh, truly world class explorers uh, okay. that I've known from the past, and uh, we're a team of three, and it well, will be uh, pushing the limits of what humans can do. Well, outstanding. Well, when. Uh, uh, when you go and, and you make it back, uh, let me know. We'll, we'll have you back on and we'll, we'll talk about it when when you legally uh, uh, can. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much legal, but it's just trying to, you know, got to be shrewd with these things. <laughs> right. No, 100%. I, 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 I 100% get it. So, well, again, Kevin, thank you very much for, for spending some time with, with me and my, my listeners. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, and, and good luck with uh, getting everything put together in, the, in that next adventure. Hey, thanks, Earl. I really appreciate it. Yep. Uh, and listeners, again, one more time, Wild Success by Amy Posey and Kevin Vallelee. Um Pick up a copy. Have it on your desk. Uh, this, this is a great, uh, if you like the human spirit and, and adventuring, you're going to find something here. If you want to become a better uh, leader, you'll, you'll find some stuff in here. So this is a great book. Um, I'll have the links to it. Uh, I, again, I want to link that trailer because that is, uh, if that doesn't get you motivated to, to read the book, I don't know what will. <laughs> um, but thank you for spending the time with Kevin and I here. I uh, really do appreciate you all. Make sure you're rating, reviewing, and, and sharing out the show so it can grow and, and gain visibility so uh, my guests can get their messages out there better. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, actually, that's a question I didn't ask you, Kevin. Uh, how can people reach out to you? Uh, you can reach out actually through our website is the easiest way, uh, morewildsuccess.com. And that would be the easiest way at all. Okay. And uh, if you want to reach out to me, uh, just burden.command at gmail.com. Let me know if you have any ideas, any feedback for the show, any ideas for guests. Um, and with that, thank you again for spending the last hour with us. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a beautiful different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the city of angels. My IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.